My name is Reverend Elvin Dowling, D-O-W-L-I-N-G. I am a candidate for United States Congress for the 20th District of Florida. This, 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 is, this is Diversified, diversified game, game, game. game. A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. It's Kellen, and today on Diversified Game, you guys are in for a real treat. It's going to get political, but it can also go spiritual, too, because I have a reverend and a candidate for Congress down here in South Florida. He is going to give us the game on, you know, his campaign, what makes him stick out. So welcome, Reverend Elvin. How are you doing today? Oh, Kellen, if I were any better, I would be twins. How are you today? Man, you know, blessed by the best, and we are, you know, just so happy to be where we're at in these unpredictable times. And talking about unpredictable times, you are not a career politician. You don't have um, the governor's blessing because you're suing him currently right now, which totally, you know, a lot of people say, man, this is common sense. Uh, Put on a mask. It won't kill you. Uh, COVID can. But tell people about yourself and what your campaign, you know, the focus and the priority are for you. Sure. Well, first and most importantly, let me just say thank you very much uh, for this unique opportunity and the wonderful platform that you have uh, that educates entrepreneurs on how to build and successfully sustain businesses. And that's really why I'm running. Uh, A little bit about me. My name is Reverend Elvin J. Dowling, and I am peacock proud and hyena happy uh, to be in the land of the living one more time. Uh, For those who uh, I have not had the privilege of meeting or don't know me, uh, I am from the South Florida area, grew up in the the great city of West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, And I grew up, uh, Kellen, on the corner of It may not mean much to the folk out there, but the corner of Palm Beach Lakes Boulevard and Tamron Avenue, which is uh, one of the it's like saying you're uh, on the court. You grew up on the corner of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Uh, It's it was a tough neighborhood. When I looked out my front door, I saw the church's fried chicken. And when I looked out the back door, I saw the Coleman funeral home. Imagine that. Uh, But. The Lord has been good to me, and I've had the opportunity to do some pretty amazing things in my life. I served uh, for many years as chief of staff uh, for the National Urban League, where I helped to connect uh, African-Americans and other individuals of color to the economic and uh, social mainstream. Prior to that, I served as chief of staff uh, for an organization called the Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, uh, where I had the opportunity to help raise $110 million to build the Washington, D.C. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in between the Lincoln and the Jefferson Memorials in Washington, D.C. And, you know, Kellen, we always believed that the best place to put a king was in between two presidents. And so that was one of the uh, great highlights of my life. Uh, But I think the most important thing that people should know about me is that I'm a servant leader. You know, what you see is what you get. You're, You're right. I am not Uh, a career politician. Uh, You mentioned at the top of the show that I sued the governor of Florida. I did. Uh, I sued him. In fact, I've sued him twice. My first day in the race as a candidate for United States Congress, I sued him in federal court uh, because he would not call an election 
to fill the seat that was left by my dear mentor and friend, Congressman Al C. Hastings, who I had the privilege of working uh, with and working for over several years. And then as an author, uh, Congressman Hastings and I wrote a book together uh, that was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. It won the Florida Book Award and six international book awards. Uh, but when he passed away in April after a uh, battle with pancreatic cancer, the governor of Florida decided that he did not want black and brown people to have another voice in Congress. And so he waffled and he wiggled and he wavered and he did not call an election. And I looked to my left and, and you should know that I'm running against 10 career politicians, all of whom, most of whom quit their jobs, had to resign from office in order to run. And when I looked to my left to see if anybody would say anything, I heard nothing. And then I looked to my right and I heard nothing. And then I turned around and they were walking in the opposite direction. And so I stood up and I said, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? And so I sued the governor of Florida uh, on behalf of 800,000 people to restore voting rights in my district. Four days later, the governor relented and called the election. Uh, and this has been the longest congressional delay in the history of America. And so if you live in South Florida right now, you do not have representation. And I mentioned also, Kellen, that uh, several of the candidates resigned from office. Well, what kind of implication does that have? That means now that the governor of Florida is empowered to call their election or fill their seats with the person that he wants in office. And so now a person who has demonstrated that he does not have the best interests of people of color at heart is now the one who's deciding the political fate of people of color. And so I will fight him uh, on the streets. I will fight him in the courts. I will fight him on the landing strips. I will fight him wherever it is we need to fight him to protect the rights uh, of people who deserve to be heard in this, our democracy. Now you were, you know, telling the, the people that, and I just want folks to, you know, maybe have a even better understanding because some people, you know, they're like politics. I want to stay out of it. Like George Carlin, they want to stay out of it. Was he delaying that to do some type of gerrymandering in your opinion? Or what was the point of, you know, stalling this election? That's a great question. I believe that the governor of Florida decided to stall this election because there are razor thin majorities in the United States Congress. And so when Congressman Hastings passed away, the Democratic majority in Congress went from four seats to three seats. And so when you have that sort of razor thin majority, by not filling this seat, it gives the opposition an opportunity to stall uh, the Democratic agenda in Congress. And so this was very well played on his part. And you got to remember that this is a governor that came out of the United States Congress before he was a governor. So he knew what he was doing. Uh, and let me just say this, you know, I'm reminded of, you know, a fellow who picked up a snake he saw on the side of the street and the snake had been run over and he nursed it back to health. And he's feeding this snake and he cared for this snake for all these years. And one day the snake ups and bites him. And as he's, as he's laying there dying, he said, how could you do that to me? I cared for you all of these years. I, I, I nursed you back to health. And the snake looked at him and said, but you knew what I was when you picked me up. And so we knew that the governor of Florida was a snake when we picked him up. The fact that five politicians who are so enamored about being in Congress that they're willing to give up 
black political power in South Florida to a crazy man is unconscionable. So what does that mean? That means if, you know, if you live in certain parts of South Florida in the 33311, for example, in Fort Lauderdale, you're not going to have a county commissioner. You're not going to have a state representative. You're not going to have a state senator. And you may not have a congressman. In the United States of America, taxation without representation is tyranny. And I will fight that tyranny with every breath of my being. Well, you have, you know, and you guys can check out whether you're listening or whether you're watching. I'm going to put this out real quick because we got elections coming up. And I, I want to know what is your, you know, your key uh, problem that you'd like to solve? And before you answer that, I say like to solve people because Congress does not have a magic wand. Congress has to work inside the rules. So a lot of times people will hire you like you are, you know, Harry Potter and can just make poof things. They have to go to vote and there's a process. Hopefully you guys learn that in middle school, if not high school, if not college, but give us some of your, you know, key points that you would like to focus on once day one, once you get in. I appreciate that question. And so for those who, um, uh are looking to vote for Congress. I just want to remind you that early voting is going on now. The election is this Tuesday, November 2nd. And there are three legislative priorities that I would like to uh, bring across the finish line if I'm given the privilege of serving. And so I'm running on this idea of better jobs, safer communities, and servant leadership. And, you know, at first glance, when you hear it, you say, well, that sounds nice. Well, what does that really mean? Because Better jobs in Riviera Beach, if you live in South Florida, is something totally different than better jobs in Belle Glade, which is a rural area of the district. And so a couple of things that I'm going to be campaigning for and fighting for in Congress, a $15 an hour minimum wage. I believe that it is important that we pay at least that. And frankly, that's still not enough. But we have to, at a minimum, double the minimum wage. And so I'm going to campaign on that. I also, uh, I want to make sure that I fight for this idea of a universal basic income for those who are living below the poverty level, as well as our seniors. You know, I, I serve as chair of the board of one of South Florida's largest food banks. And since COVID-19 has hit, we have been the sole source of groceries for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of South Florida families every single week. And so I want to fight for food insecurity. I see the impact that it has. We've been able to provide 20 million pounds of free food to black and brown people and poor people all throughout this district. And what this pandemic has demonstrated for us is the fragility of our community. When, you know, if you, most people don't understand, and I have been homeless in my life. Uh, and the, I like to say that the Lord has been very good to me. I live in a beautiful community, a gated uh, community, but I grew up in the hood and there was a period in my life where I was homeless. And so I know what it means to go without. Uh, I know what it means to be hungry and to not know where your next meal is coming from. And so I want to fight for those things in the United States Congress. When it comes to servant leadership, I'm not a crook. And so I'm not going to say anything just to get somebody to vote for me. To me, my soul is more important than winning an office. And I look at it, look at this election from the perspective of what will it profit me to win this election and lose my soul in the process. And so I made a point of, of letting the people know that I will not lie to you. I'm not going to make things up 
uh, to try to make myself look better. And Lord knows I'm not going to make you promises that I can't keep. We have one uh, candidate, for example, who is promising, literally promising people, vote for me and you'll get $1,000 a month. Yeah, well, if ands and butts were candy and nuts every day, be Christmas. If if was a fifth, we'd all be drunk. And so I don't believe that. That was a gimmick then. This is a gimmick now. You know, when Herbert Hoover ran for president uh, in the 1930s, he told everyone that he wanted uh, to have, wanted every American to have a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Well, I'm not going to lie to you to get your vote. And so that's what I mean by servant leadership. I am not taking any dirty money. Keep your stinking money. I don't want it. And so if taking dark money, and I should tell you, Kellen, that there have been millions of dollars in questionable funds that have been poured into this race. One candidate uh, has put in 2.3 to 3.8 million of quote unquote her own money into this race. Now this is a eight month gig because we got to run for whoever wins when I win, I'll have to run for reelection in August. 2.3 to 8 to 3.8 million dollars into this race, but won't tell us, won't fill out a financial disclosure for years. And this is their third time running. Over six years, never fills out a financial disclosure, won't fill out any FEC reports to let us know who's giving you money, where it's coming from. I'm not going to do that. I believe that people deserve to know who's funding their politicians. I believe that people deserve to know that their elected officials can be trusted, that, that they're going to do what's right. And so that's what I mean by servant leadership. And the last part that I'm, I've been campaigning on for the last six months uh, is this idea of safer communities. Now, I have walked a beat as a police officer. I served as chief of staff uh, for the National Urban League on Wall Street in New York City for several years. And for kicks and grins, uh, I was a, an auxiliary police officer with the NYPD. And I became an auxiliary police officer with the NYPD because in my first week in New York City, moved to New York City, uh, from Baltimore, I was chief of staff of the Alphas, became chief of staff of the Urban League, moved to New York City. And my first week in New York City, I was uh, pulled off the train. I was dressed like this, probably a little better, had a three-piece suit on, clean, sharp as a tack. Pulled off the train by a New York City police officer. They held the train. This train is being held for police activity. And I'm sitting there like Scooby-Doo, right? You know, ooh, ooh. I don't know what's going on. And they come on and they say, you. And I'm looking around like, I know he ain't talking. Yeah, you. Come on off the train. And they said, we got a report that someone fitting your description jumped the turnstile. I said, so now, let me get this straight. I'm from the country. And I am a little slow. But you got a description that a well-dressed black man in a three-piece suit and a briefcase jumped the turnstile. Really? Uh, well, to make a long story short, they found my receipt for my uh, subway card. They found the subway card. They swiped it. Yes, he had swiped the thing. And there was never an apology. There was never, we're so sorry. It was just, get out of here. And I thought, you know, I need to understand where this comes from. And so I took 20 weeks of training with the police department. And I walked a beat in Harlem for a year and a half, almost two years, because I wanted to understand what the people felt about the police. And I learned very quickly that it wasn't very positive. And so some of the things that I'm going to be doing is, is I want to transform how we do policing in the United States of America. 
Police in America, and I wrote a book about it, as you can see, Still Invisible, Examining America's Black Male Crisis, got nominated for a Pulitzer, six international book awards. But I talk about in the book the creation and the establishment of the police in America. They were established specifically to catch your black behind. And it has just sort of morphed since then. And so I believe that we ought to transform how we do policing. I think we ought to ban chokeholds, to be clear, without question. I think we ought to get rid of uh, cash bail for misdemeanor and nonviolent offenses. We have a we have a justice system where people will spend years locked up in prison because they can't afford a three hundred dollar bail. There's something wrong with that, and I think that there are things that we can do in Congress to change it. Well, that is a you know a great list of things to do, but let's just go a little deeper, even just on the $15 minimum wage and full disclosure in Seattle. I was, my company was paid um, to push a campaign for that. But this question that I have is, you know, entrepreneurs always will say, especially restaurant owners, if you make us pay them $15 an hour, the food prices are going to go up, which I'm fine with that. Cause I remember when you actually had to have a little extra in your wallet to have to go eat. It wasn't that everybody was supposed to go eat. But what do you say to that restaurant owner, you know, of all colors, of all, you know, um, varieties, that if you make me pay these people, I'm either going to have to cut hours or my food price may double, if not triple. You can't have it always. You, you got to make a decision what you want. You know, we live in a country where we rail against immigrant labor. But then we complain that folk don't want to make $7.15 an hour. And so figure out what you want to do. I've been an entrepreneur, too. I have hired and I, I am a reverend and I attempt to be reverential. And so I'm not going to use the language I would typically use if we weren't in polite company. But yeah. my whole thing is this. I have hired more than 100 people through my small business. I have never paid them less than 15 to 20 dollars an hour ever. And I'm not saying that to impress you more than to impress upon you that it can be done. At what point do you say we have made enough profit? And look, I, I am for entrepreneurs making money. I've been an entrepreneur. I was chief of staff, as I mentioned, at the National Urban League. And then one day uh, back in 2009, after about seven years, I walked into uh, the CEO's office, uh, Mayor Mark Morial, who was mayor of New Orleans and is now uh, the CEO for the National Urban League. And I quit my job with no job. And, you know, quitting your job with no job is like walking to the edge of a cliff, jumping off and growing wings on your way down. Now, <clears throat> one of two things is going to happen. Either you are going to learn how to fly in the moment or you're going to hit the ground. And so for those who are listening, say, well, if I have to pay, then my food prices are going to go up. Fine. We're willing to pay that. If that means that you don't have a slave labor workforce, I'm willing to pay a little extra for your for your taco. I'm willing to pay a little extra for your, you know, uh, the, the dishes that you sell, the dishes that you serve. But we have to ask ourselves, at what point do we stop taking advantage of the poor and of our labor force by by underpaying them while at the same time simultaneously reaping great profits? I think the time for that has to change. And, you know, you had mentioned being in uh, a beautiful suit and being pulled out. It reminded me of uh, Laura Shishburne and Isaiah Washington movie when uh, Isaiah Washington was in a, a suit and he, you know, came down into his track suit. So maybe that's why 
NYPD. You know, I'm, I'm sure they say that's why we saw that movie from the 90s. And, you know, we thought maybe you were trying to trick the people. But with your message so far, you know, nothing um, sounds trickery. And, you know, everything that you want to do, as far as the pandemic, which you have a certificate in um, from Harvard, folks, from Harvard, um, about pandemics and not how. How would you go about handling this pandemic that we're still in? You can't tell, by the way, folks aren't wearing masks, and future pandemics from your education and your um, experience. I appreciate that question. And so one of the things in preparation for running for Congress, I knew that I had to educate myself. And so I went back uh, and began learning about things that I thought were important to the people of the 20th Congressional District. And so I went to Harvard uh, and took a course uh, on preventing the next pandemic. And what I learned was this, in, this idea of systems, space, and stuff. Right. And so we, we need the we need the, the systems in place, our healthcare systems uh, to make sure that they're operating effectively. We need the space to be able to treat people uh, who have uh, contract uh, contracted these deadly diseases. Uh, we need the stuff, meaning the PPE, the personal protective equipment. So there are a number of things that we need. But one of the interesting things that I found in the course that I took at Harvard University uh, they they talked to epidemiologists from around the world, and they asked them all the same question. Do you believe that we will make progress when it comes to ending pandemics, or will we be at the same place five years from now? And this course, it was a, it was a pre-recorded course. It was an online course that I took. It was actually initially done uh, in 2015. I took the course in 2019. 2020. And five years later, to a T, every single one of them said, we don't believe that we as a people are going to learn anything. We didn't learn anything from Ebola. And the next pandemic is going to be even worse. And they were absolutely correct. And so how do we deal with these issues? I think that it is important to, uh, particularly in schools, to require that children wear masks. And we say, well, you know, I don't want my kid wearing a mask. You know, I don't want my kid to be forced to be vaccinated. Come on, man. You know, when you went to school, you had to get a chicken pox vaccine. Like, what, what are we talking about? MMR, measles, mumps, rubella. I remember going to the health department as a four or five year old. My mother would take me and I would have to get these shots before the school would even let me in the door. So, like, what the are we talking about? Right. You know, like, let's let's be real here. And so, again, with our crazy governor. He decided that he did not want the children of Florida to have to wear masks. And so I sued his ass again. I sued him in state court this time. I was the first person in the state of Florida to challenge Governor DeSantis's executive order on mask mandates. Soon after, a number of parents, so I was the first parent in the state to sue him. A lot of other parents joined in. We were successful in getting a judge uh, to put a temporary restraining order on the governor with regard to uh, telling school districts that they cannot mandate masks. He has challenged that ruling uh, at the appellate level. And so the fight continues. But let me just say this. These colors don't run. If, if, if you come with me, don't come for me, lest I send for you. And so, you know, what I would say to the governor of Florida, and I would say to anybody else, when you come for our children, expect a 
fight in court. If not from me, then who? And if not now, then when? Well, and let me ask, because many people, um, you know, we all run to the hospital, or many of us, when we are sick, our children are sick, we definitely run to the hospital. But there is this, you know, protest uh, and empty vessels make the loudest noise. Some people who haven't even passed chemistry want to talk about what the vaccine is and what it isn't. So would you be in favor of mandating people to the point where if you don't get the vaccine, you can't go to school or you can't go to work? Or what is your stance on that, given that, you know, it sounds like you're on the side of science and we have pseudoscientists who are, you know, getting all the attention on the Twitters and the Instagrams and the, you know, they can't do it on YouTube because you'll get kicked off. But, you know, what's your opinion on that? Isn't it amazing how folk who failed ninth grade chemistry now have the experience necessary to tell us how to get through a pandemic. This is crazy to me. And so, you know, with regard to mandates, I believe that we ought to, I support mandates for federal workers. Look, if you work for the federal government, if you want your job, you need to get back, you need to get a vaccine. To be clear without question. If you want to bring your kid into the school, you need to, the, the kid needs to be vaccinated. And so, and look, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I understand when people say, well, I have a religious exemption. No, you don't. Stop lying. You ain't been to church since they opened the doors. Let's be clear about that. You know, I get so, I'm sorry. So, you know, you got these folk with these religious exemptions and they couldn't, they couldn't pick Jesus out of a lineup if they had to. But yet they say that, you know, I, I believe that because of my religion that I shouldn't get the vaccine. Okay, fine. Look, if you if you don't want to get the vaccine, that's on you. But the challenge I have is when you go around, make everybody else sick. And so here's my solution to that. If you work for the federal government, the federal government, Joe Biden has instituted a mask mandate. I support that. If you want to send your kids to school, I think they ought to have uh, a vaccine or a darn good reason why they shouldn't. Everybody else, you know, with regard to private employers, if you work for a private employer, and your private employer says that you need to get a vaccine and you don't and you lose your job, that's on you. You can always become an entrepreneur, make your own money. But if you're working for somebody else and they have rules, so long as it's not illegal, unethical or immoral, I don't have a problem with it. And I can already hear you guys um, that just want to argue on something and say, now he's trying to turn us all into entrepreneurs. I can't even, I don't even understand algebra, but you understand the vaccine. <laughs> um, and, and so it, it's so interesting. And I, I, and, and I, I appreciate, you know, you being so forward with that. And you spoke about Bell Glade. And I'd love, because, you know, Tamron, I came here thinking, oh, I'm going to go on Tamron. Let me go to uh, the barbecue spot uh, off the bone, fresh off the bone. And I said, let me, uh, let me, you know, I'm in the hood. Um, so this is where it's all good. And I said, things seem to be changing a little bit. It's not like what I saw on TV coming here. So there seems to be, and I know there's millions of dollars being pumped in to that area right now. And when I'm house hunting, I definitely see prices, you know, doing their thing. Um, but what are you going to do for that area where you're from and Bell Glades, which are predominantly, you know, black and Latino areas where Bell Glade um, not the same infrastructure. If you just go around the corner of the lake, 
They're putting millions and millions and things are getting built up. So what can Belglade get? And what can, you know, where your home city, your home neighborhood, what can they expect out of you if you come into Congress? I appreciate that question. And so I think the most important thing that they can expect from me as a member of Congress is someone who is going to show up when it matters. I want to show up at your Belglade City Hall meetings. I want to show up at the at the Pahokee City Hall meetings. I want to do like I did in West Palm Beach and show up at City Hall meeting to talk about the need to address the homeless issue in our area. And so one of the things that I want to do uh, that I believe will uh, impact people in West Palm Beach because there is a massive uh, housing crisis in Palm Beach County and in West Palm Beach in particular. And so I believe that we ought to uh, continue the moratorium on evictions so that we don't see uh, our people being thrown out on the streets. Uh, and so I support that, but particularly with regard to Bell Glade uh, and Pahokee. You know, everybody in this race, and I, I should tell you that, you know, this is a district of 800,000 people. I anticipate if we're lucky, we might get 50,000 people to vote. Uh, there may be a couple of thousand votes out of Bell Glade in this election. And so from a numerical perspective, they aren't the lion's share of the vote, but they matter to me. And so I want to I have that same level of advocacy that I've had in the past. And so what are you talking about, Elvin? <clears throat> when the pandemic hit, I met with the mayors of Bell Glade, South Bay, and Pahokee. And I asked them, how could we help? And they said, Brother Dowling, we need food. We need food. Our people are starving. They're hungry. You know, people don't know what, where their next groceries are going to come from. And we responded to a real need in a real way. And I kept showing up. We didn't get in. We didn't make any money uh, taking millions of pounds of food to Belglade every single week, taking a truck into that city every single week. And so I want to continue that level of advocacy. One of the things I've said, Kellen, that I am, uh, Elvin Dallin is just too big to fit in anybody's pockets. And so there's huge industry in Belglade, particularly the sugar industry. Uh, and, you know, I think that uh, the jobs that they provide with big sugar is awesome. Uh, I think the economic opportunity that they provide for the area is necessary. But I also think that it is important to make sure you operate in a way that doesn't harm the community. And so when you look at, uh, for example, these controlled burns, I have concerns about that. Uh, I want to make sure that we have the federal resources we need to have monitoring uh, of air quality standards because it's it's. It's something to be to live in a community where you can't breathe, where, you know, you've got soot and smoke and the kids can't go outside today or tomorrow or next week because it's cane burning season. And so I have a concern about that. Uh, and those are things that I want to uh, continue to fight for. Look, I'm going to stand up for the folks of the Glades, but I don't want to bring my agenda to their issues. What I'd like to do, however, is to go and learn what their agenda is and to take that agenda to Congress, because you should also be mindful of the fact that earmarks are back. What does that mean? That means that we can get millions of dollars in federal resources to reinvest in our local communities. When Congressman Hastings passed away, there was approximately $17 million in earmarks that were immediately put on hold because there was no member of Congress to push them forward. 
I want to bring those things across the line, but I'm going to sit and listen to the people of the Glades and figure out what they want and take that to Congress. Let me ask you, let's just go back to the vaccine real quick, because I could hear somebody say, yo, here's the reverend. He should understand that, you know, this um, could be the mark of the beast. Is there anything in the scriptures that you have seen that you would see that this is the mark of the beast? Because from what I understand, and I have my complete Bible, um, not to be controversial, but I got the Bible from Ethiopia, where it's originally started, and it has more than 66 books. Hello, that's a, that's a talk for a different day, people. But you have to have an ear to hear and understand. But I'd like to know, because I have not seen any vaccine that gives it to you in your right hand or your forehead, and that someone saying you can't buy or sell. So is there anything in the scriptures that I have missed that you have seen people have a valid point to say, one, this is the mark of the beast. Two, you know, we don't know what's in it, which Chris Rock, I think, said you don't know what's in a Twinkie, but you eat it. So give us the game scripture wise. If, you know, they have any we can debunk that or we can say maybe it's a possibility. I don't know everything. I believe and you know, I'm coming from a perspective where I was called to preach when I was 14, 15 years old. And so I've been doing ministry for 31 years. Uh, I uh, went to the New York Theological Seminary to further my understanding uh, of scriptures and the word. And I would say to anyone who's listening that the biggest mark of the beast that you can see and be sure that it is a mark is the mark of stupidity. And, you know, so don't be stupid. You know, the Apostle Paul even says, brethren and sisters, I would that you not be ignorant concerning these matters. There are people who profit off of your demise. There are people whose whole business model depends on you not doing certain things like taking a vaccine, for example. And so they, they want to push these narratives. You know, I, look, I believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, I do. And, and I also believe that that my beliefs end where yours begin. And so I'm not going to push my beliefs on anyone else. And so if someone thinks that this is the mark of the beast, you know, I, I can't I can't convince them otherwise. Forrest Gump uh, often said stupid is as stupid does. And so I would just say that uh, the greatest mark that we need to avoid is stupidity because stupidity kills. And, and when people who, who I've read too many stories, I've probably lost oh, 10, 12 friends uh, since COVID-19. I mean, like vibrant young people, young people who were great friends of mine who are just gone. And so, you know, I, I, I need you to survive. You, you, you do us n no good if you're six feet under. And so, you know, I, I was uh, oftentimes I do praise and worship service by myself uh, in the kitchen uh, when I'm cooking. And the other day I did a praise and worship service uh, and I put it on Facebook Live. I just cook and sing. And, you know, it's, it's uh, my wife said, that's kind of eccentric. I said, yeah, it is. I'm kind of eccentric. But I love the Lord. With all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength. But one of the songs that I played and ministered to people was a Hezekiah Walker song that was made many years ago. Uh, and it says, I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. You know, I need you to survive. And so if you're listening to me, all jokes aside, uh, all passion aside, I need you to survive. 
Your family needs you to survive. We need you to be able to talk to your grandchildren and your great grandchildren. And to do that means you have to make smart decisions. And we're living in a time where if you don't, you can literally die. And so I want you to pray about it. But after you pray about it, go get the God, get the God scene. That's that. Sorry. I I get it. I get it. That when you lose people and you lose enough people that are close to you, it it can get, it can pull that out of you. And you've talked this whole interview, even in your campaign, because it is not free to run. And, you know, you're taking even your personal monies and friends and family that, you know, legally that you can up to that amount. Can you talk about, because it's my signature question, uh, another community give back that you've done or one that when you get to Congress that you would like to do for the community? That's a great question. And so I mentioned that I grew up on the corner of Palm Beach Lakes Boulevard and Tamron Avenue, which is a tough neighborhood. Uh, I had uh, brothers and cousins. Everybody's for the most part dead but me. My brother, uh, when I was about 14 years old, my favorite cousin, James, uh, he had gotten involved in uh, drug activity uh, and he got mixed up with the wrong crowd and was kidnapped, shot nine times and dumped along the side of A1A. And then when I was a student, a junior at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia, my brother Bryant uh, was sitting in his car on the corner of uh, Tamron and 4th Street and was shot in the head and killed. The very next year, my brother Rod got in a fight Uh, at a park and was shot and killed in a shotgun blast. And so I learned from those tragedies that I could be bitter or I could be better. And I decided to be better. And so one of the things that I have done is I have really poured myself into mentoring. I have had the privilege of mentoring people who are now doctors uh, and attorneys uh, and a couple of elected officials. Uh, But I, I took it a step further. And so I was able to, uh, in my own private way, as an entrepreneur, I was able to get $2 million we were able to raise to mentor 3,000 young black boys from Riviera Beach to to Seattle, to Rialto, California, to Miramar. And and we we not just got the money to mentor these boys, we matched them with 3,000 mentors. And I was able to get a million dollars for Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity and a million dollars for 100 black men of America. I want to do, and I was able to get it from the United States Department of Justice. And so I want to continue that level of advocacy in Congress. One of the things that I believe that we should do when it comes to safer communities, I think we ought to reinvest or invest more heavily in youth development programs. And so I think that, you know, I think it is easier for us to uh, build better boys than to mend broken men. And so I want to invest those resources, invest those dollars in local community groups that are mentoring our kids. I think we ought to have millions of federal dollars to flood into these organizations to get our kids off the street because many of them, frankly, don't value life itself because they haven't seen that this is just a waypoint. This isn't the end. All you got to do is keep living. If you keep waking up every single day, I promise you it will get better. You know, and I wouldn't have known this when my brothers were murdered. You know, it looked like the world had come to an end. But I'm grateful for the fact that I just kept waking up every single day. And look at me now. 
you know, I, I, I've got a beautiful wife, three beautiful children. I've, I've written two best-selling books. I, I, I grew up in an apartment that was less than 400 square feet. Now I live in a home that's more than 4,000 square feet. The Lord has been good to me. I've been homeless and now I'm not. I've been hungry. Now I've been able to feed, you know, more than 2 million people, 20 million pounds of food. And so I want to continue that level of advocacy. But the first thing I would do would be to do everything we could to invest in our young people by making sure they have the mentors and access to uh, after school activities, whatever it is we need to do to get them off the street. That's what I'm going to do as a member of Congress. Wow, that is a great thing. And for those who, you know, my mathematicians who will tell me <laughs> privately in an email, you say you raised two million people, 3000 kids impacted. That's 666. No, that's $666.666667 for kids not to have to go into the jail system, which it costs a lot more, or for someone else to be harmed in funeral costs. So flip your mind, flip your thinking. It's a beautiful thing. It's a positive thing. And we thank you for your service and what you've done and what you'll continue to do because you're still young. So the best is yet to come. I want you guys out there to go check out the links in the description box. And if you're able, and you um, qualify, I want you to go out there and vote. And if you're not, I want you to drive somebody who is able and go have them vote. You go get your voting rights back. If you haven't, you gotta vote. Laws have changed, you're able. You guys, be out there, be blessed. Share this with someone, it will change their life. Thank you for coming. Let's be clear, this is a matter of safety. This is a matter of the well-being of our children. This is a matter of life and death for many of our... I'm Elvin Dowling, a candidate for Congress, not a career politician, and I approve this message. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. Be sure to visit DiversifiedGame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.